difficulties that can arise in the course of sitting a retreat like this, they also arise in our lives, but they're often very noticeable in the first few days of a retreat especially. So I'd like to begin tonight with a story. It's a story about a bear. Once there was a great black bear who lived in the mountains. He was happy and free. When he wasn't sleeping, he spent much of his time searching for food. Sometimes he found some, and sometimes he didn't. That was his life. One day, some men came and captured him, and they took him to a large circus where they locked him in a small cage. Soon an animal trainer taught him to perform circus tricks. Each time the bear performed a trick correctly, he would be fed. The rest of the time, he just walked back and forth in his cage. It was a small cage, so he got to know it very well. He always had enough food, and soon he forgot about his life in the mountains. One night, after several years had passed, some vandals crept into the circus and broke open all the animal cages. The bear was suddenly free, and he left the circus and found his way back to the mountains that had once been his home. But the mountains were now unfamiliar, and it was not easy for him to find food. So he began turning somersaults, forwards and backwards, backwards and forwards. Now some other bears happened along, and they watched him for a while and asked what he was doing. Oh, he replied, I'm doing tricks so that I'll get food. You Dumbo, they laughed. You're in the mountains. Who's going to bring you food for turning somersaults? You must find it yourself. I like this story because to some degree we are all like this bear. We have learned tricks to help us survive, but we have forgotten how to be free. Now the bear, like us, in its essential nature was already free, but through the forces of social conditioning, we, like the bear, have forgotten. We don't trust this natural knowing, this freedom. We believe we need a strategy to make it through this world. So a meditation retreat is a very wonderful opportunity to see very directly what kinds of tricks or strategies we tend to use when faced with an unfamiliar situation, which for most of, for most of us this is. The Buddha talked about three basic strategies for dealing with our human situation very strong tendencies of mind which seem to offer short-term solutions but but which actually perpetuate our suffering. These are the forces of greed, aversion, and ignorance. When we don't see them for what they are, when we don't understand how they work in our own lives, in our own experience, in our own minds, we become driven by them not finding the happiness and peace we wish for, and not understanding how we are indeed perpetuating our own suffering. So I'd like to look a little bit at these tendencies, not 
in any way to uh, imagine that this is all there is to say about them, but we only have a limited amount of time. (laughs) It is said that although we all have these tendencies, for each of us, one of them will be predominant. So it is said that some people are greed types. In them, greed or desire is the most predominant tendency. Some people are aversion types. For them, aversion, avoidance, anger, hatred are the predominant tendency. And others are ignorant types. For those people, a kind of confusion or dullness or spacing out is a predominant tendency. So let's imagine that there are three types, three people, a greed type, an aversion type, and an ignorant type, and they are each entering for the first time the same situation, perhaps a retreat. What might we expect from each type of person in the same situation? Well, the greed type immediately upon arriving, would see what he or she likes and go after it, disregarding what is unpleasant. They might think, oh, I want to talk to that person, and oh, I like it over there. I think I'll sit over in that part of the room, and oh, yes, what is there to eat, and oh, I'd like a taste of this and this, and oh, I think I'll have a little of that, and maybe a little more of this, and oh, yes, this is wonderful, and oh, I'd like to go over there and speak to those people because it looks like they're having an even more interesting conversation. And so there's this kind of devouring quality of just sort of eating up the whole situation and going very much for what, for what we like, what is interesting, what is stimulating, always moving on for more, never really present, never really content with being where one is, always looking for something more. Enough is never enough. And it's interesting to note that when we are in the grip of desire, strong desire, we become like, you know, horses or with blinders on. There's a definite constriction in our view of the situation, only seeing what we want and disregarding everything else. You know the saying, when a pickpocket meets a saint, he only sees the saint's pockets. That's missing quite a bit of what is possible. So that is the greed type. The aversive type, on the other hand, in the same situation, coming into the same situation, would react very differently they would tend to immediately see what he or she doesn't like. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, this is, this is not very pleasant. Oh, dear. Oh, I think I've made a mistake. Or, you know, nothing is ever quite right. There's always some cause for dissatisfaction, which can result in sort of trying to avoid the situation or get rid of the unpleasant aspects of the situation. The aversive personality may be very picky and sort of overly discriminating. Well, I'll only talk to this person and I can't deal with the rest of these people. This is the aversion. aversion. 
The ignorant type, on the other hand, quite different from both the greed type and the uh, aversive type, tends to be a bit dreamy about the whole thing. You know, they come in and they're not really noticing particularly what's happening. They're kind of lost in fantasy, perhaps a little spaced out, and the kind of whatever's happening is sort of fine, but it's not really connecting with them. You know, they're a little bit, they don't have much discrimination. They're just kind of there. Another way that ignorance can manifest is in a kind of magical thinking, theorizing a lot about how things work in a way which is really quite out of touch. There's a wonderful story about Nasruddin, who is a Sufi saint or fool or however, however you wish to see him. One day he was seen by his neighbors outside his house sprinkling breadcrumbs all around the periphery of his property. And his neighbor said, Nasruddin, what in the world are you doing? And Nasruddin said quite confidently, oh, keeping the tigers away. And his neighbor said, but Nasruddin, there's no tigers for thousands of miles. At which point Nasruddin said, effective, isn't it? <laughs> it's this kind of belief in magical rituals, magical thinking. We think we know what is causing what, but actually we're quite out of touch. So this is just a very brief description of three basic tendencies of mind that we all carry, and all of us probably have one that is more predominant than, than the others, but they are very much act as filters on the way in which we experience the world, the way in which we relate to the world, the way in which we notice the world. Greed sees primarily what it wants. Aversion sees primarily what is wrong and what it doesn't want. And ignorance just kind of escapes from dealing with it at all. So one of the things to say about these tendencies is that when we are caught up in identifying very strongly with desire, with hatred, with a kind of ignorance. We get very busy trying to reorganize the external world to meet our needs. The greed type gets involved with gaining, accumulating, grasping, devouring, always needing more. And yet more is never enough. I remember reading a story I'm sure we've all done this, about a very wealthy man. I think he's one of the most wealthy men in the entire world. Obviously, you know, more than enough in the material plane. And yet he is constantly accumulating more. And constantly, one of his friends say, his most out outstanding characteristic is a kind of restlessness. He's always you know, leaving one house and one staff to go visit another house and another staff with all his cars and boats, whatever, is not a contentment with what is what is. Enough is never enough. The aversive type will be very busy trying to reorganize the external world to get rid of things to avoid things or to condemn certain people, not to like them, to, to avoid whatever is unpleasant. 
And the ignorant person, of course, is escaping from dealing with the situation and from the anxiety by fantasy, philosophy, fanatic thinking, magical thinking. Now, all of these strategies are based in fear. They may appease our immediate anxiety and bring some temporary feelings of security, but they do not really bring us the deep abiding happiness and freedom which we seek. So where is happiness found? Where is freedom found? Where is it? It's found in coming into harmony with the way things are. (coughs) Seeing things as they are. How often do we hear that phrase? Now, have you ever noticed how quickly when we come into a new situation or we meet a new person or we hear something for the first time, or it can be as simple as a smell or a taste or a sight, how quickly we form an opinion how quickly we like or dislike, or approve or disapprove, or agree or disagree. We are so quick to take a stand, to have an opinion, a belief, a view of the situation. How does this happen? And how does it happen so quickly? Well, now, the Buddha was quite an astute and subtle observer of this process of how quickly we come to form our particular version of the world. I'll give you a very simple example that could easily happen here at at a retreat. Suppose that before tea time, you're out walking somewhere in the vicinity of the kitchen, maybe in the dining room or outside, near the kitchen windows, and you smell, oh, just a wonderful scent coming out of the kitchen. And it smells absolutely like your favorite chocolate brownies. And you are just filled with pleasurable anticipation for the delight which awaits you, because you know that this is, this is just wonderful. And in your ecstasy at this smell of these wonderful brownies, you may find yourself thinking about how wonderful this place is and how great retreats are and how well taken care of you are by the staff and how thoughtful the cooks are and, oh, you should do these retreats more often. They're just so great. Now, on the other hand, you might be walking by the kitchen window just before tea time and you smell this very acrid, burning odor coming out of the kitchen. And you think, oh no, oh my goodness, they've burnt our tea treat. They've burnt our wonderful treat for tea, and now all we have to look forward to are the rice cakes and the apples. (laughs) Oh God, why did I ever sign up for this retreat? It's too much, it's too hard, I don't like retreats, and you might even have a few unkindly thoughts about the cooks or whatever, all on the basis of a pleasant scent, a pleasant smell, versus an unpleasant smell. 
This may sound a little bit exaggerated, but if you are willing to look into your experience, you may find that this kind of thing happens all the time. Based on the slightest little vivid sensory impression, the mind can take hold and immediately create a story, immediately create an elaboration based on that experience. This is something we can observe here as we slow down, as we become more attentive to our process. In the Thai language, the word for crazy means thinking too much. Thinking too much. We could say that this kind of proliferation of mental activity, although we don't need to call it crazy, does indeed lead us further and further away from reality. Instead of just smelling, oh, a pleasant smell or an unpleasant smell, the mind creates a whole scenario. A whole story gets created. There was a Zen teacher whose name temporarily escapes me uh, in this country who taught his, when he first came and he was teaching them many of the Japanese um, customs that were used in the Zendo, etc. He taught his Zen students here to gasho. Do you all know gasho? This means bow. It's a, it's a very common um, way of entering and leaving the, the Zen meditation hall, of greeting your teacher, to gasho. And it, there's quite a tradition of it in Japan, and etc. So he taught this to his American students, and at the same time he tried to explain to them the, the full significance and meaning of this simple gesture. And as he said, he explained and he explained and he explained for many months. This went on. He would keep trying to explain it because he felt they didn't really get it. Until, as he said, finally no one understood. And this occurs. How can we explain this? A gasho is a gasho. A sound is a sound. A thought is a thought. A taste is a taste. Anger is anger. Fear is fear. Can we stay with, can we connect with the bare awareness of these events without building this whole mental elaboration, this mental proliferation based on what we like or what we don't like, what we want to avoid, without reacting. This is in large part the direction of this practice, seeing things as they are, not our personal version of them, but just the simple, fair reality. So greed, aversion, and ignorance are unconscious strategies of elaboration, and they very much color how we relate to the world unless we can see and get to know them in ourselves, observe them, see how they work. I promise you it'll make your practice very interesting. Now there's three other 
particularly troublesome or sometimes troublesome states that can arise, especially at the beginning of a meditation retreat, and I want to go over them as well. They are restlessness, doubt, and sloth and torpor. We all have our favorites. So restlessness, not at all uncommon when we have been living at, you know, 80 miles an hour and we come in here and are expected to slow down to about, you know, five miles an hour. Sometimes this kind of shift in in complexity and stimulation and speed may create a certain kind of restlessness where the mind is scattered and the body's kind of jumpy and there's no, there's a kind of, sense of things being too tight and too much pressure and you need to just kind of release some energy. And indeed, in working with restlessness, it's good to remember that it might be an indication of your being a little bit too tight with yourself, that you may need to take a longer walk, a faster walk, a run. You may need, when you're sitting, not to be so intent on bringing your your focus to the breath, but be a little bit more spacious in your awareness to focus on the sounds or on the posture. These can help to kind of create a a greater sense of spaciousness in the mind and in the body. The next difficulty is that of doubt. And in many ways, it's the most subtle and um, perhaps tricky kind of difficulty to work with. If this practice is working properly for you, I think it's fair to say that it, it will not be meeting your expectations. Meaning that if your expectations of what you imagined were going to happen are not happening, it means that's good news actually. It means that you're letting go of your personal agenda that you're allowing the process to unfold in its own way. Now, for some of you, this may be very good news. You expected something horrible, and actually you're kind of enjoying yourself. For others of you, this will be very bad news. You expected something much better, and now it's not so great. So for the latter people especially, this may be a time when doubt arises. It may be doubt in the practice I don't think this is good for me. This is not what I had in mind. I came for peace, and now I'm completely a basket case. Or it may manifest as kind of a doubt in oneself. Oh, this is much too hard. I really doubt that I can do this. I really don't think I can. Or it may be doubt in the teachers. Who are these women? What are they doing up there? Do they know what they're doing? Where do they come from? Who authorized them to teach? It might be doubt in the teaching itself. I don't know. It sounds kind of... I don't know. It doesn't sound good. (laughs) (laughs) The mind can do all kinds of things with this kind of, you know, situation of simplicity. It adds up to doubt. It may get so bad that you may think, well, I just made this really bad mistake. I better get some other people's opinions about it. So you might come to the teachers, or you might speak to a friend, or you might go in the office and ask them their opinion about it. <laughs> but actually collecting opinions just, just tends to generally add to your confusion and sense of uncertainty. 
And what is underlying doubt is indeed this desire for certainty. We want to know that we are doing the right thing. Well, how often in life do we really have that, you know, rock bottom certainty? One of the teachings of this practice is that you don't have to be certain about everything. You can actually learn to relax and to trust that you can live with ambiguity and not knowing. Not knowing. Not being so certain about everything. Not knowing where you're going. And it's actually a very useful place of refuge because it keeps us open. It keeps us much more open than any attitude of knowing and certainty does. It keeps us open and receptive. We cannot possibly figure everything out beforehand and the truth is we don't need to. We learn to trust ourselves in this process and we learn to trust the unfolding of this process. There's a physicist in Berkeley by the name of Brian Swim, who wrote a wonderful little book called The Universe is a Green Dragon. And one day some of the uh, teachers in California were meeting with him, talking to him. And he told us a story which I've never forgotten, which is, I'm not a scientist, so this is like kind of very interesting information for me, but he said that if there was one person in the world who could comprehend every event that had occurred in the universe since the beginning, supposed beginning of the universe, that person still could not predict what was going to happen next. Now that's quite something to comprehend, isn't it? Evidently, to be in harmony with the way things are in this universe is not to know, is not to know what's coming next. So doubt, restlessness. The last difficulty, and also challenging, is that of sloth and torpor. And in a way, there's no need to explain this. <laughs> the words do, do it justice. My favorite story um, concerning this particular difficulty is about the animal. There's an animal called a, a sloth. And evidently, not very much is known about the sloth because those people who've gone out to uh, observe it and research it get so bored (laughs) because it never does anything. It just sits there. (laughs) So all we know is it doesn't do very much. (laughs) And you may feel that there are days here where that is indeed the case for yourself. Clearly, the need here is to bring more energy into the system, bring more energy into the body, bring more energy into the mind. 
Faster walking may help at times. A radical suggestion is eating less food. Oftentimes when we eat less, we have more energy. Also, it's very useful, I think, if you're really, I mean, often in the first few days, it's, it's almost inevitable that there's going to be a certain degree of, of dullness and, and sleepiness. But it, it's also, I think, a useful reflection to really remember what it is that brings you here, to reflect on what it is that really interests you. What is it you're, why are you sitting here? What do you want to know? What is it that awakens you, inspires you? What is it that calls you? There's something that calls you here. What is it? To reflect on that, to really get in touch. So there's that sense of real zeal, of interest, of, of calling. So how to work with all of these difficulties? First, to recognize them, to recognize them, to know when they are present, to know when desire is present, to know when aversion is driving you. No small thing, no small thing, just to know when they are present, also when they're not present. This anger that I ex- was experiencing so fully and strongly this morning, where is it now? Not to go looking for it, but just to be aware that it, it's impermanent, evidently, because it's not around. Perhaps if you're feeling very contented, very peaceful, you might notice it's the absence of greed. This is the absence of greed. I'm feeling very content, very peaceful. Nothing is missing. Nothing is lacking right now. So that we really begin to notice the presence and absence of these things. Also to notice your attitude toward them. Because often we get very judgmental of ourselves, very critical of ourselves. We think that, you know, we shouldn't be experiencing this. This is our fifth retreat and it shouldn't happen like this. I shouldn't be sleepy. I shouldn't be caught in greed or lust or whatever it is. Or we may feel very kind of helpless in the face of some of these strong mind states, just overwhelmed by our anger or our fear. So we kind of succumb to them as if it's inevitable that we have to endure them. Our attitudes towards these different mind states is very important. Not to be fooled, not to think that they're never going to come again. Of course they're going to come again. So to be ready for them, to know them for who they are, what they are, and not be overwhelmed, neither succumb. And to see them as an opportunity, not as an occasion for judging yourself, but as an actual opportunity. This is an opportunity to develop all these qualities of mind that we're speaking about. Don't take it personally when you're in the grip of anger or fear or greed or jealousy or whatever. These are mind states which we all know, which we all share. It comes evidently with the package of being human. They are impersonal. They come, they go, they are impermanent, and they're not our personal property. So, the fact that they are present at any particular moment does not mean anything of any ultimate significance about who you are. We all have them at times. They are our teachers. 
It is through learning to work with them, to know very clearly their nature, that we learn to be awake and free in all the situations of our lives, not just when we're feeling blissful and peaceful in a secluded country retreat. And probably most important of all is to remember that the power of our awareness is stronger than any of them. The ability to be present and aware in itself, very simply and directly, is stronger and more effective than any antidote or any strategy I could recommend. That willingness to be completely present. I'd like to share a story about Milarepa, who was a Tibetan yogi. He spent many years in solitude out in the wilderness in his cave and one day he had been outside gathering wood and he came back to his cave. He was confronted by a gang of demons. And this is a Tibetan way of describing these difficulties that I'm speaking about. They just speak about them a little more colorful, colorfully by calling them demons. So Milarepa, seeing them, he immediately tried to get rid of them by pulling out every practice he had ever learned, every technique, every strategy he could think of. He threatened them, he ignored them, he even preached the Dharma to them. But nothing worked. They just kind of were still around. So he realized that he needed to do something else, so he kind of became more attentive and began to observe them more closely. And as he did so, he felt some compassion arise in himself in relationship to them. And he sang a song in which he said, It's wonderful that you demons came today. You must come again tomorrow. From time to time we should converse. At which point three of the demons disappeared. They vanished like a rainbow. No, I'm sorry, six of the demons disappeared until there was one left. And the one left, Milarepa looked at and he said, oh, this one is very vicious and very powerful. He will be really difficult to deal with. But he drew even closer to this demon and offered him a, a kind of feeling of compassion and friendliness to the demon. And he again sang another song. He said, Demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We will talk out our differences. Ah, me, I feel compassion for this spirit. In other words, he was really putting out a... He was, he was really totally accepting the situation at this point. He was not resisting it. Come again, we'll talk. Come again, this is wonderful you're here. Imagine saying that to your anger. Oh, please visit me tomorrow. You're just, you know, this is a little bit un unusual, but this kind of attitude of total acceptance and surrender. So it is said, with friendliness and compassion and without concern for himself, Mila placed himself in the mouth of the demon. At which point, the demon vanished like a rainbow. In total surrender, our demons vanish. 
they lose their power. And now to mention one more thing which I mentioned this morning and I've been mentioning in some of the groups today and that is when one of these difficult states of mind arises something that is cannot be said too often and that is very, very useful and that is about letting go of the story your anger arises let go of the story. Stop dwelling in thoughts about what he said, what I wish I'd said, why didn't I say that, next time I'll say this. Letting go of the story and coming directly into contact with the energy of the emotion in the body, coming into the body. Where do you feel it? Where in the body is it located? going directly into the sensations. No story, no thinking about, no strategizing, no analyzing. This is making direct contact with this which is moving through us. It has arisen and it is changing and it will, it will pass away. The story is what keeps it around. If you want to dwell in anger, the best way to do it is to keep going over the story dwelling in the past, imagining the future. Letting go, in essence, means not dwelling, not giving a lot of attention to. These difficult mind states, you could say, arise in our mind like uninvited guests. And what do we do with uninvited guests? There's the story of the Zen master who was visited day after day by a group of uninvited guests. He did not turn them away, but each day he gave them less and less food to eat until finally they stopped coming. In the same way, we don't need to feed our demons. So the uninvited guest of your anger arises when you learn not to dwell in the story, when you explore its impact on your body and your mind, you are actually in the process of letting it go letting it be. And then what happens? What happens when you actually let go? This is the story of Sisyphus. Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rocks sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Who would Sisyphus be without his rock? Letting go 
of these tendencies may challenge our self-image. Who are you without your grief, your fear, your self-judgment, your anger, your dwelling in the past? Who might you be if you let these go? There are different stages of practice which come in time where there is quite a feeling of disorientation because our usual reference points of thinking we know who we are are suddenly not around anymore. I'll give you an example from my own experience, and that was after I had, I think, sat my first three-month course, and I'd had a lot of um, emotions arise, a lot of experiences of all kinds, and then I kind of came into a place in my practice where it seemed to me that nothing was happening because all the drama had gone and I was just sitting and walking and it was peaceful. But nothing too much. You know, I thought, oh, I've somehow blown it. You know, nothing's going on. So I went to Joseph and I, I told him, I described my experience and I said, you know, help. <laughs> Nothing's going on. Something should be going on. That was my expectation. So he kind of smiled at me and he said, actually, you know, I think that what you're experiencing is calm. Calm. And my first thought was, I don't do calm. (laughs) I mean, it's not me, you know. I'm not a calm person. I I don't do this. But he, you know, then I realized, oh, This is an impersonal factor of consciousness that we all have, that we can all contact, and it will arise at a certain point in practice. But I wasn't that identified with that state at that time. So it was a little bit awkward to accept that I, of all people, could be a calm person. I didn't recognize myself. I felt a little awkward with it. So pay attention to what happens when you do let go of some of the drama or the story. You may actually feel a little disoriented, and that's okay. It's a good sign, really. I'd like to close with um, something that John Cage wrote. And it's called Silence. If you let it, it supports itself. You don't have to. Each something is a celebration of the nothing that supports it. When we remove the world from our shoulders, we notice it doesn't drop. Where is the responsibility? So perhaps we could sit together for a few minutes.
This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on July 19, 1992. It is an offering of the